Good evening, church. How's everybody doing so far this evening? Hey, just so you know, if you were here last week when I almost died mid-sermon, when uh, the stage broke, we are in the process of fixing. Say a quick prayer for me right now because um, right now it's tied together with tape, okay? But we believe, we're expectant that the stage is going to hold for the rest of the service. Uh, that, was, uh, that was something else. Uh, this evening, we're going to be do- doing something a little bit different, something we've done before, one, one time previous, and I want to kind of tell you now, and then we're going to set the stage for it. So normally, you know I don't preach from a stool. Uh, that's why the stage breaks, because I move a lot. But this evening, we're going to be doing a live Q&A. So the idea here is to create a safe space where we can dialogue together on the big questions of faith, the big questions around God, uh, the big questions on life that hinder our worship, that tarnish our worship, uh, that are kind of locked in and maybe creating barriers for us in our relationship with God. And so I'm telling you that on the front end because I want you to take the next several minutes as we're kind of setting the stage. We're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 35 in our series, Wanderers and Wrestlers, looking at the very back half of Jacob's life. And I want you to uh, take note of this slide right here, which is the text message number. So that is our text message number. If you text in, uh, it will remain anonymous. You don't have to put your name. You don't have to say who it's from. Uh, but you can text in any question you want, and I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing that we get to all of them. And I also want to say this from the very beginning. I'm not sitting up here like a sage who knows every single question about God and faith, okay? That is not true. Um, I have questions. I've worked through things. I have had seasons of doubt that have affected my faith, and I've had to process, and I've had to work through other people. So the idea of doing this tonight is not for me to say that I am the one who dispenses knowledge. Um, It is to say that this is how we should be able to relate with one another. This is what we're going to be inviting you into in the small groups for the fall season, which is called From Doubt to Faith. Opportunities and spaces to actually be honest about the questions of faith, the doubts of faith. And so hopefully tonight serves as... Um, a launching pad for you. Maybe some of those doubts are answered or worked through, but hopefully it instills a pattern and a culture in your life and the life of others in this church and outside of it where you can accept the doubts that you have and work through them, okay? So the question tonight that I want you to kind of, you know, respond off of when you text in is what are your doubts around faith? It could be anything, Okay. What are your doubts around faith? It could be theological. It could be a question that you've always had. And text it in over the next five, ten minutes. And then we'll just go through the questions as they come in. Now, these are real, okay? Just so you know, it's not like I'm telling you to text it in and they're not real and I've actually already pre-made you know, made it. These are real, okay? So your question's actually going to get read in a little bit, hopefully, if we have time to go through it. But as we set the stage... I want to look at Genesis chapter 35 because here I think we see a template for the way in which we are to come to God with these doubts, with these questions. Um, Before we jump in, let me just tell you a little housekeeping. If you want to take a picture of the number, just because we're going to have some other slides, take a picture of it now before we jump in and move through. We'll have it up at the end as well for you to text in. 
But Genesis chapter 35, this is nearing the end of Jacob's life. We've been going through this summer looking at Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. We've been with Jacob for several weeks now. And God is going to call him back to a place of significance. The reason is because God wants to reassure Jacob of who he is, how God sees him, who God is. He wants to build hope in Jacob's life because his life has been kind of a mixed bag of of valleys and peaks. He's been through a lot. He's made a lot of poor decisions. He's made some strong decisions. It's been a mixed bag. And so God wants to call him back to this place of significance to kind of reassure and bolster his faith, to grow him in spiritual leadership of his family and his friends. And that's what we're going to see. So Genesis chapter 35, let's just read the first four verses together. Here's what God's word says. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's what's happening. If, you were, if you've been with us this summer, you know that when Jacob stole the blessing from his brother Esau, he deceived his father, he, he was outcasted from his family, and he was running away to a foreign land. He stopped in this unknown place, put his head upon a rock, and there had this God dream, often called in Scripture, Jacob's Ladder, which was a picture of angels ascending and descending upon this ladder connecting heaven and earth, and there God speaks to Jacob in his uh, profound moment of distress and despair, and he gives him grace, and he reassures him, and he gives him that blessing once more. It's a very significant moment in Jacob's life because when he wakes up, he wakes up with praise and he names that place Bethel. Now, Bethel means house of God. And then he moves forward into his life. But his life is not all that he thought probably coming out of that significant moment. It was a life of feeling exploited and of difficulty and of flawed decisions and some positive ones. And now God is calling him back to Bethel. Now, a few things to notice. First, it starts out by saying, God said to Jacob. So here's, this is important. God is the one encountering Jacob. It's not Jacob who's like, hey, I need to kind of get right with God. I need to work through some things. Hey, our whole family, we have some things that we kind of have to repent of. It's God coming to him and saying, I want you to go back to Bethel. I want you to encounter me there. I want you to come worship me there. I have some things to say to you there. So God comes to him to call him back. Jacob knows what's going to happen. He knows the significance of this place and God calling him to go back. And so he goes to his family and he tells them two things. The first thing he says is to put away the foreign gods. Now, they have been all around different sections of this part of the world encountering different people groups and different religions. 
Along the journey, they have accumulated some of these idols, these little statues of foreign gods, and some of this jewelry that is kind of connected to those cultures and those lifestyles. So Jacob knows that in order for them to go back and to encounter God, they need to repent. And what repentance really is, it's the removal of anything that tarnishes or hinders your worship of God. You see, repentance, the word repentance means return. So if you're going to return to God, if you're going to repent, you need to let go and to remove anything that is hindering or tarnishing your worship of God when you return to him. So he says to his family, take all the foreign gods. We have to repent of them. We have to remove them. So they take them and they bury them under a tree. It says hide them under a tree. The Hebrew is really bury. So they take them and they bury them under this tree, which is significant. It's symbolizing that these idols are now cut off. They're killing these idols. They're removing. They're burying these idols and taking them away from their life. And then Jacob says, change your garments. Now, this is also important because it's symbolic of what they are stepping into. They're stepping into new life. It's a change of direction. It's new clothes. They are going to experience newness. And God is going to reaffirm this in Jacob in particular in a moment. So they have been called by God to return to him. They're repenting by removing anything that tarnishes and hinders their worship of God. They're burying it under this tree to be cut off from them. And they're walking in, a new, in newness of life. New clothes, new garments. So then Jacob has this encounter with God in Bethel, the house of God, verse 9 and 10. Here's what it says. So God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. If you were with us last week, you know that Jacob's name has already been changed to Israel. God has already changed his name. Jacob, the deceiver, is no longer. He is now Israel. The word Israel means wrestler with God as he wrestles with God. Now, God comes to him and tells him again, your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. Why? Because Jacob needed to hear it twice. Do you, ever, you resonate with that? Do you ever need to hear things multiple times from God? He's got to come to you and reassure you and tell you again and again and again. God knows that Jacob needs to hear it again. So he comes and he says, hey, Jacob, I know I've already changed your name, but I want to tell you again, you are not Jacob, the deceiver. You are Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Jacob needed this reassurance from God. He needed to hear that word once again. Even though he's heard it before, he needed to hear it again. God continues to speak to him. He says in verse 11 and 12, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall, shall come from you, and the kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God comes to Jacob after he's reassured him once again that 
His name has been changed. He's no longer associated with his past. He is now Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Jacob, you need to understand that, God is saying. And then he comes and reassures Jacob once again of the blessing that he's been telling him over and over and over again his whole life. As we've been following Jacob's life, you know this is a repeated theme. God keeps coming to Jacob and telling him of the blessing that is his over and over and over because he needed to hear it over and over and over. And he says here, Jacob, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Now, oftentimes when you hear that in the Bible, you know it's associated with having children, but here it's not associated with that because Jacob already has 12 sons at this point. He's done his part, okay? It's not about having children. What God is connecting that to is what is going to come through his family. You see, the promise that God is giving to, to Israel, Jacob, now Israel, is that from his family will come the people of God, the company of God's people, the nations, the kings, that from his family will be the people of God. They will be fruitful and multiply. I want you to understand the significance of what is being told to Israel, what he now knows, the honor that is bestowed him, this flawed and broken man, but one who has received God's grace and blessing time and time again. And that is this, that God's people, who will one day be named in the very near future, Israel, that God's people are named after him. God's people are people that wrestle with God, that look and function a lot like Jacob, that have a past that God wants to disassociate us from and point us to our future, that God wants to rename us, that God wants to come meet us in our flawed nature and our broken leadership, and he wants to speak to us oftentimes over and over and over again so that we receive his promises and his blessings. The people of God are called Israel. And we know that is true, but I want you to hear this too, and this is how this is setting the stage for us to wrestle tonight. You are Israel. You may not be from the actual line of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, the bloodline, but you are Israel. The Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, if you are Christ, meaning if you are in Christ, if you believe in Christ, then you are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, the Apostle Paul says this in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. He's writing to the church in Galatia, which is not predominantly Jewish. This community of people that he's speaking to is overwhelming majority non-Jewish, Gentile believers. And Paul is saying to them, you are the offspring of Abraham. Now, they're not actually from the bloodline of Abraham, but they are the offspring of Abraham. They are heirs of the promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Why? Because they're in Christ. In Christ, you are the new Israel, which means in Christ, you and me are the new wrestlers with God. God invites us to wrestle with him through our doubts, through our idols, through anything that hinders and tarnishes us from worship. And just like Jacob, he oftentimes calls us back to places of significance, not always physically, sometimes mentally. He calls us back to places of significance, 
And when he's calling us to those places, he's inviting us to repent. To return to him by removing anything that tarnishes and hinders us. By discovering and processing and identifying the idols we have in our lives and burying them under the ground. Removing them. And we are people with a lot of idols. I'm a person with a lot of idols, okay? The, uh, John Calvin said that our, our heart is an idol factory. We, we produce idols. And yet, God still invites us to himself to receive his grace and his blessing, his, our, the reassurance of who we were but who we are now in Christ. But I want us to see something tonight. It's two things. It's the significance of and the importance of burying your idol, and it's also the understanding and the acceptance of you despite your idols. You see, God comes to Jacob before he buries the idols and invites him back. Come back to Bethel, the house of God. I, I, I want to I bless you. I want to reassure you. I want to give you the promises. This is before he buries them. And in response of God's grace to him, what does Jacob do? He identifies the idols and he buries them. And there's a lot of idols in our lives. Maybe you don't have a physical, you know, foreign God in your pocket or in your house. If you do, good idea to remove it, buried under a tree. But I think our idols are more sinister because they're, they're less easy to identify. They're idols that are attached to our lifestyle, are attached to our emotions, are attached to our intellect. And there's a lot of them. We're not going to sort through all the idols that we all have here tonight. But I want to identify that one idol that's associated with the question. And it's the idol of doubt. See, I think doubt can become an idol that is very sinister. It's crafty. It's hidden. And it's latched onto us. And oftentimes what happens is that we don't even know it. We don't see it until it rears its head, but we don't process it. And maybe for many of us, we've never buried it. And I think part of that is because the idol of doubt is like a leech. Now, I'm blessed to be born and raised in South Florida, so I don't really know about leeches. I don't think they're here, but I know they're in the woods, so I never go in the woods. I'm afraid of them. But leeches, I did some research, okay, you know, because I don't really know anything about nature. But leeches, I know that they're hidden. They're small. And the one thing I've always been told is that you can't just rip a leech off. Like if you find a leech on your arm, you can't rip it off. And oftentimes, you have to really discover where they are because they hide themselves in your hair or wherever. Sorry, there's no leeches in South Florida, so don't get nervous, okay? But they're hidden and they're destructive. And if you just pull it off of your arm, it will wreak havoc on you. Because when you pull a leech off without the proper, careful way of removing, the leech will leave behind its mouth and its teeth in your skin, opening up a pathway for bacteria to go throughout your body. And I think for many of us, we've never addressed the idol of doubt. We've never buried it for one of two reasons. Either because we were never in an environment where we were invited to actually honestly deal with our doubt with safety without judgment and so maybe we were told growing up that if you have doubt that's wrong just rip it off but if you just rip off doubt and throw it away 
it oftentimes leaves its teeth behind and it opens up a pathway for bacteria to affect your heart and your mind and your worship because you didn't remove it properly. So I want to open up a space tonight to work through things properly, to be honest, to be real, uh, and to identify our doubt, to create a safe space and a safe culture here at Crossbridge Brickle where you can say, hey, here's kind of what I'm struggling with. Here are the questions I have. And find people, not just tonight, that can walk with you through those things in small groups, through the leaders here in the church, because it's important. We don't want people coming to church and living their lives with the teeth of doubt in their skin, opening up pathways of bacteria to affect their worship. We want to process it honestly. We want to remove it carefully. And once we do, we want to bury it. Because God's inviting us to return to him with faith and trust and hope in who he is. And he wants to reassure us of who we are in him. And I want you to know this. As you t- text in your questions, you put up that, perfect, you already had it, great. Ahead of me. As you're texting in your questions, I want you to know something. God is not shocked by your doubt. And he's not nervous about it either. He's not. When I became a Christian in college, I changed my major from, well, when I felt called to ministry. I was in business school. Some of you know this. And I changed my major from business to religion. And I I went to Florida State. And so it was not a Christian environment. I was the only Christian in my major. Everybody else was atheist. And I studied all the other religions of the, of the world. And I remember people telling me, um, no, don't go there. You're going to lose your faith. And I remember responding to people, if my faith is based upon truth, God is not intimidated by the questions that are going to come at me, and neither am I. Because I should be able to process. Because truth always stands up. It wins the day. And so God's not shocked. He's not nervous about your doubt. Jesus identifies that we doubt. There's people all throughout the Bible that doubt. In fact, the book of Jude, written to Christians in a general sense, not a specific church, but Christians at large, the book of Jude says this, have mercy on those who doubt. Meaning, we should expect to be a part of a community with people that have doubt. We should be merciful. So, what are the questions that you have? What are your doubts around faith. We're going to sit here and go through this for a little bit. Let me see. Okay, you guys weren't nervous at all. There's a lot already. Okay. Let me start at the top. Um, Okay, this is a good question. This is a theological one. And uh, we can make this quick because we're going to address this in the next series. It's almost like This person kind of is plugging our next series that starts in two weeks. Um, The question is this. How can one be both a continuationist? That's a theological term that means that you believe that the gifts of the Spirit are still active. So all the gifts of the Spirit, including um, speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, all of these things. How can one be both a continuationist and believe that the canon, the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is closed? So... You can't add to Scripture. It's closed, as the book of Revelation says. How can one be both a continuationist and believe the canon is closed? Where does the Bible say that the canon is closed? Okay, so let me address that just very briefly. Um, There's two types of views around spiritual gifts. Some people 
Everybody believes, most, most Christians believe that there are spiritual gifts. There's a whole host of spiritual gifts. Um, in the next series, which is going to be on spiritual gifts in two weeks, we're calling it Activated, we're going to look at 21 spiritual gifts and help you discover what are your spiritual gifts and how do you deploy them in your life and here in church and in your friendships and family. So some people believe that there are these gifts that some people call power gifts, like uh, speaking in tongues, prophecy, uh, healing, other gifts that were only around at the beginning of the church, the first few centuries. And once the canon was closed, meaning once uh, the church identified that these are the books of the New Testament that are orthodox, that are inspired by God, that it is in fact God's word, that those gifts ceased so they are no longer in effect. So there's people that are cessationists. Those gifts are gone. Then there's continuationists that believe that those gifts have continued, that they're still alive and active today. Um, the reason that people think that the gifts have ceased is because there's this verse in Scripture that says, when the perfect comes, the gifts will cease. So it's an interpretive issue. People that think that those power gifts are gone believe that the perfect is referring to the canon of Scripture. So once the Bible is come, which we saw in the third century, once that is closed, then those gifts have ceased. Continuationists believe that the perfect is not the Bible, it's Jesus. Once he comes, the gifts will cease because they are no longer necessary. Um, spoiler alert, we believe in the full expression of the gifts, and we'll walk that through, and it may be a little bit different from maybe what you grew up in or what you heard. Whether you fall on either side of it, you're welcome to process that over the next several, right, next two months with us. Okay, that was the first question. Um, yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> okay, I see a couple questions on um, the big question. I think this is like always the main question of faith, which is, you know, how can God, there's a couple variations of this. How can God, who is, is loving and is good and is powerful and is all-knowing, how can he allow evil and suffering? This is like a huge question of faith, and uh, I'm not going to answer it tonight. Um, not, not because I don't want to, but because I did last time. So if you were here last time, if you go on our YouTube page, there's a clip of me answering that exact question. So we can get to some other ones because it's a longer answer. Um, you know, check out our YouTube page for that one, please. Uh, let's see. Okay. Oh, this is a good one. Why are there so many other religions who don't believe in Jesus Ancient religions like Hinduism and Islam, uh, why does it feel like there are so few Christians? So that's, that's a good question. So let me kind of tackle that. Why are there so many other religions who don't believe in Jesus? I think first off, our heart um, and our soul is inclined, is, is built, is uh, created to worship. And so we are people that are creating something to worship. And so it would make sense, therefore, that there are all types of other religions that are created to answer the big questions of our soul, the questions that science can't answer, the questions that philosophy tries to answer. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? Is there a God? Why do I even have those very questions in my heart and soul? Why do I want to know if my life matters and if there's purpose? 
So it would make sense that we as human beings would manufacture and create things that would be religions that would try to satisfy those desires of our heart and our soul. We don't only do it with religion. We do it with all types of things. We create and invent things that we want to worship to try to satisfy and fill that hole within our heart. Now, the question here is talking about ancient religions, um, Hinduism and Islam, and don't believe in Jesus. So a lot of religions, I mean, believe in Jesus. Almost every religion believes in Jesus as a historical figure because all of scholarship uh, identifies Jesus as a historical figure. Um, Islam believes in Jesus as a prophet, not as the Messiah. Um, But the question on ancient, it depends on what you mean by ancient. So the two oldest religions in the world is Judaism and Hinduism. Um, Judaism is attributed to, so our faith stems from uh, two. 2000 year 2000 BC 20th century BC Abraham but our our faith extends before that right so that's where just you know maybe the uh, the rest of the world would identify that the bible is is rooted is in Abraham so 2000 years ago hinduism is about 2000 to 1500 BC um, that's an ancient religion as well uh, confucianism is a little bit after that buddhism is about 400 BC and then um, Islam is, is actually not before Jesus. Islam is around 600, um, 600 AD, 610, I think is the, the date. So it's, Islam is 610 years after Jesus, um, just to put those things in perspective. And I tell you that because a lot of people say all the religions are the same thing. You know, uh, They're all essentially a little bit of the same thing. Be good to people. Um, you know, there's a God, maybe different variations of God, except for Buddhism doesn't believe in a God. But there's like some path to enlightenment, to satisfaction through the following of the rules of the religion. So I always answer that like this. Most religions have, a, have some things in common. You know, there's, there's a, another theological term called common grace, which is that God gives common grace to all of us. We're, we're made in the image of God, and so that's why we want to seek after God. And that's why we have the ability to think, and we have a soul, and we have justice, and we have morality written within our hearts. And so when we create these religions to try to answer those big questions of faith, there's going to be some commonalities, meaning... We want to establish a culture of justice. We want to do good. And sometimes those things differ depending on the cultural definition of good that these religions are created out of. But there is kind of that golden rule that do good, you know, follow these rules, obedience to God, the path to enlightenment or to heaven or whatever the different variation is. So that is true. There is common grace given to all people. So it makes sense that there's similarities. Here's the big difference, though. Every other religion in the world has a pathway to God or to enlightenment. So in Islam, there's five pillars. In, in Buddhism, there's the eightfold path. In Judaism, there's the law, the Torah. There's all of these rules that you follow, these things that you do, and if you're faithful and if you're obedient, then you will find what you're looking for either in this life or the life to come. Christianity is the only religion that has the exact opposite. Which is, yes, there is the law of God. Yes, there is morality. Yes, there is the way in which God has designed you to live. However, the gospel message is you can never fulfill it. 
You can't do it right. You're going to make mistakes. We're all like Jacob, deceivers and flawed, and yet God calls us back to himself through Christ. So we don't work our way to God. We never could. The Christian message is the exact opposite of every other religion in the world, which is that we surrender our life to God. We put ourselves below God's grace And we say we we believe in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's the only reason that we are saved is because Jesus died for our sins. And therefore, in response to God's grace over our life, then we can seek to live a life of obedience. Not the other way around. It's faith plus nothing equals salvation. Not works. Works is the response of faith. And so that's, I don't know how I would answer that question. Um, That actually kind of answers another question here, which was, why does Christianity have to be exclusive if all faiths are working towards making people better? Why does Christianity have to be exclusive? I think it kind of answers that. Um, Let me find another one. That's... Okay, this is uh, just a light one. Ready for some light work here? Um, Why did God create Satan if he knew that chaos and suffering would unleash on humanity? Thank you. Um, (laughs) I think think this is a a really important question. Um, It's attached, it's framed in different ways, and maybe there's some other questions around this too. So it's... The question is oftentimes not just why did God create Satan, but it's also why would God create an environment where, or a world where there is the ability for sin or evil? Why did God create a hell? It's another question that's kind of associated. How, I think it kind of goes back to a very preliminary question, which is, is God on the hook for evil and sin? If God is the creator of everything, then if God has allowed evil to come in from the beginning, if God allowed Satan to fall and rebel, if God has allowed the, the opposite of heaven, which is hell, is God on the hook for that? And I think that's a really good question. I think it's also a mysterious question. I'll try to answer it, but I also am not God. Um, so I don't know, you know, I can answer it to the best of my ability in my finite mind of how I think it operates. Um, but I think that the real answer is far beyond what I, I can know. And that is this. There's a question behind the question, which is why did God create all of this in the first place? Um, God does not need us. God was in perfect community with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally so. There's no need for us, and yet out of God's joy, he created us. And it is for his glory, but the heart of God to do that from the very beginning, I don't think we'll know until we meet him and to to fully understand his intentions. But I do think that there's something that we need to identify in the question of trying to put God on the hook for evil, for Satan, for hell, uh, for sin, and that is this. That God created us in such a way that we were made in his image and we were given a will. So we were given the ability to 
choose to uh, have some agency. We're not puppets. And so that doesn't mean that God is not sovereign and he is working and he is in control of all things. I believe that. But we also have a will. Our human will at times is at odds with God's will. But just because God has created this environment with will, it does, mean, does not mean that God is on, hook, on the hook for the decisions that we have made or that Satan himself has made as God gives agency. So the removal of Satan from the heavenly court, if you will, and the rebellion of Satan is God allowing Satan to make those decisions for himself just as he allows us the freedom to make the decisions that we make and we make those decisions. Now, why does God allow it? I don't know. But I will tell you this, that when you set up an environment for flourishing and for joy and for goodness, and you place someone within that environment that seeks to destroy it, the person that creates the environment is not culpable for the decisions of the people in the environment. As an example, if I have a stove, which I do, in my house, and I, I tell my, my son, hey, this is really important because this is how we cook and how we make pasta and how we make taco bowls and how we make all the different food that we make, right? But don't touch the stove. If you touch the stove, it's going to hurt. It's, this is good. This is for our flourishing. This is for the health of our family. It's really important, but don't touch the stove. But then I trust him. If he touches the stove... Am I at fault for not putting like a fence and a security system around it? No, because I gave him the option and he chose the wrong option if he puts his hand on the stove. So God is not, that's the law of first and second causes. If God allows something to happen, he's not responsible for it. And also with the, the, the idea of hell, I think sometimes people get uh, confused on hell. Hell is just the absence of God. And so if God removes himself from a space, that is hell. So if God has said, I've eternally invited people to come enjoy life with me for all of eternity, and that is heaven, and it's the new heavens and the new earth, and there there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more brokenness. It will be joy. It will be worship. It will be the depth of your heart fully fulfilled. Then if God is in that place, then that is heaven. And wherever the other place is, based upon the choice of people to not want that relationship with God, that is hell. It's a removal of God. It's been said that, that hell is actually locked from the inside. It's not locked from the outside by God. It's locked from the inside because the people that don't want God, they get what they want, which is hell, the absence of God. God is not responsible. He has invited an opportunity for all people to come to him. And the mystery, the big mystery for me is, which I'm going to ask God one day, why from the beginning? I want to know. And uh, I'm excited to, to hear the answer. I think we have time for one more. Um, uh, okay, this is a great one. I'm not going to answer it, but I'm going to read it. Discrepancies in Scripture. How can we explain the contradiction between Matthew and Luke's account of Jesus' genealogy? And I'm sure there's many other. So, in the small group, we're going to address the reliability of, of Scripture in, in part one and part two. So join the small group. Shameless plug. Um, uh, lastly. Okay. 
The Bible says that Jesus identifies with us in our temptation, but Jesus never sinned. How could that be true? Okay, let's, we'll close there. And then um, I'll promise to take some of the extra questions that you sent in. And the next at the table, we'll address some of those, which is coming up in October. I'll let you know more about that later. But this is good. The Bible says that Jesus identifies with us in our, our, our weakness, our temptation, but Jesus never sins. How could that be true? So I, I, I love this because this kind of goes to Hebrews chapter 4, where it says that um, Jesus empathizes with us in our weakness because he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And sometimes we can think, well, I don't understand how Jesus could identify with me in my temptation because I succumb to my temptation. I fall. I make mistakes. Jesus never did. So he doesn't really know what it's like to be tempted. And I would say actually the exact opposite is true. If anyone knows what it's like to be tempted, who can empathize with us in our weakness, it's Jesus precisely because he never gave in to it. You see... When you, underst- when you understand the nature of temptation, I think it makes this point clear. The only reason that you even know that something is temptation is because you're battling it. If you always give in to everything, then you don't have temptation. You just do whatever you want. But when you identify something as temptation, meaning that it's something that you, you want to do, Uh, but you don't want to do and you're battling against that, then you feel the power that it has on your life. And yet because Jesus was tempted in every way but never gave in, he alone knows the true power because he always resisted. Just like in working out, if you work out and you never add more weight, you will never know what it's like to have to push against the tension of that to push it up, to get more gains And the same is true with us. As you fight temptation, you understand its power. And that's why you can cast your cares on Jesus. You can come to Jesus in prayer. You can know that he identifies with you because he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to feel the full force of it because he never gave in to it. He felt the tension and the pressure of it over and over and over again, and yet he never gave in. And so who could better identify with us? The person that gives in to temptation cannot identify with you in your temptation. But the person who never gave in, he alone can identify precisely with you in the way that you're tempted. Just want to encourage you with that to actually believe Jesus at his word that he wants to identify with you in your temptation. Thank you guys for texting in some of these questions. I want to invite now the worship team to come up. We're going to close our service Uh, with a song. And as they're coming up, I want to tell you how this passage ends with Jacob. So Jacob, he is called by God to come back to God at Bethel, the house of God, to encounter him there. And he knows that as he returns to God, he has to repent. He has to identify the idols in his life. He needs to gather them up and he needs to bury them. And so he does that, and then he puts on new clothes, change of direction, a change of his life and the life of his family, and then he gets to Bethel, and God speaks to him, and God tells him once again who he is. You are no longer Jacob the deceiver. You are Israel, one who wrestles with God. He reaffirms him the blessing over his life. This is who you are. This is my promise to you. 
And Jacob responds in verse 14 and 15 with this. It says, And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. So after all of this, he does the same thing he did before, but in a slightly different way. When God, when, when God encountered Jacob at Bethel at the very beginning of his journey, the beginning of his life, really, Jacob responded with praise. He built a monument of rock, and he praised God. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Now, all these years later, when God calls him back, and now his worship is unhindered, it is not tarnished, he does the same thing. He sets up rocks of praise, he anoints them with oil, and then he calls the name of that place, what he called it so long ago, once again, Bethel, the house of God. And, and I want to tell you that I think God wants us to understand that when we encounter him, that when we come back to him, when we process our doubt with him, when we know that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are and he identifies with us in that, that God is not threatened by our idols and our difficulty, but he does ask us to come back to him and to identify them and to bury them and to worship him, that he's doing so because he wants us to respond like Jacob and to experience what Jacob experienced, which is that we are people called to build monuments of praise. We are people called to call the, name, the places that we are Bethel, the house of God. What is this place right here that we are at tonight? It's Bethel. This is the house of God. This is not Crossbridge's house. This is not the leadership's house. This is the house of God. So as we close tonight, would you come to God unhindered? Would you come to him knowing he wants to reassure you, he wants to invite you to sing and to declare who God is and who you are in him, to make this place a monument of praise to close, to know that you are in the house of God and he is here with you. Amen? Will you stand as we close in song together? And I pray that you know God's patience and his love and you receive his reassurance. <laughs>